Before we get started tonight, I did want to thank you, first and foremost, everyone here, just for the opportunity to preach. It, it can be a rare thing for someone who wants to preach to find a place here in Louisville to, to be able to preach. Um, we were, my wife and I were talking about this back in Campbellsville, uh, which is where I went to college. Places to preach is, can be rare. So I'm very honored to be up here uh, to preach through this book um, tonight. So before we begin and get into the, the um, scripture, uh, I'll pray very quickly. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight as a church gathered together to worship you, to learn more about you, about your great power, about your love towards your people. Lord, we praise you for so many things, for a, a building to gather um, without fear of persecution, Lord. We praise you for that. We praise you for your word. We praise you that we have a reliable translation, Lord. It's something that a lot of times we take for granted, but we praise you for that. We thank you for everything that you do. And tonight, I just pray that your word would be as clear as possible, that you would be glorified through the preaching of your word. We know that your word does not come back void, God. It will accomplish your will. And we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for everything that you do. In your son's name we pray. Amen. If you would, go ahead and turn your Bible to the book of Zephaniah. And if you're anything like me and you need help finding it in your, in your Bible, it is the fourth book. If you go to Matthew, just turn back four books. It's, uh, it's right there. Zephaniah is uh, mentioned uh, as a minor prophet within the Old Testament. A uh, minor prophet is comprised of the final 12 books of the Bible. There's 12 minor prophets. And honestly, whenever I was preparing this, I thought to myself, why are they called minor prophets? Why do we say that they're minor? And it's not because their message is minor. It's not because their role in Scripture was minor. Or they didn't play, uh, they didn't play a, a big role within the Bible. It's because they didn't produce a lot of material. And it's pretty simple. Uh, people like Jeremiah and Isaiah had a lot of books and a lot of chapters. But... A book like Zephaniah only has three. And today we're going to be primarily in Zephaniah 3, 14 through 17, but we will cover a little bit more. What we know about Zephaniah is a little bit more than we know about the other minor prophets, which is to say we don't know a lot. In verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah and the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. 
in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. There's one thing that we do know about Zephaniah is that his great-great-grandfather was the king of Judah, Hezekiah. So he was from a royal bloodline. And that's where it pretty much ends as far as what we know about Zephaniah. Just to give you an idea of where we are in, biblical, in the biblical timeline and biblical history, Zephaniah prophesied during the reign of uh, King Josiah, which lasted between 640 B.C. and 609 B.C. Uh, we can be fairly certain that Zephaniah's book was written early in that. Um, it's mentioned throughout the chapters that there's a lot of idol worship going on, which happens early in the reign of King Josiah. So now that we know a little bit more about where we are, we'll read chapter 3, verse 14 through 17. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgment against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult you over you with loud singing. There's three points that I want to focus on as we go through this text. The first is Christians should be joyful for what they have been saved from. My second point should is Christians should rejoice about who has saved us and what and how he saved us. And my third point is, as Christians, we should recognize and marvel at the joy God displays at saving. So my first point, Christians should be joyful at what we have been saved from. As we go through these points, I want to expand on what it comes and what comes to mind. And the first thing is, we have been saved from judgment. That's what we see in verse 15. The Lord has taken away your judgment against you. So when we have been saved from judgment, the first question that comes to mind is, what does this judgment look like? What exactly um, does this judgment encompass? And to get an idea of that, we don't need to leave the book of Zephaniah. We can get a full and total idea of what that looks like if we just stay within this book. Zephaniah 1-2 says this, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Quickly, the second verse of this book talks about the judgment on Judah. And it's a great and powerful judgment. It's uh, the, the author, Zephaniah, the prophet, and God inspiring him chose to quickly bring this point home is I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. It would be easy for the prophet to stop there 
to say, that explains everything. That is, that is everything. <laughs> I will sweep away all things. There's nothing more to be said. But he continues his description. Verse 3, I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. And finally, verse 15, a day of wrath is that day. A day of distress, distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. And we see the climax of His judgment in verse 8, chapter 3. Therefore, wait for Me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For My decision is to gather nations, to assemble, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them My indignation and all My burning anger. For in the fire of My jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed." I don't believe there's a, more, there's a stronger statement of judgment that we can find throughout the Bible and then these first three chapters of Zephaniah. Judah has uh, committed spiritual adultery on God. We'll see in just a moment the specifics of that, but Judah has, uh, has gone away from the Lord, from worshiping God. And now this great and powerful judgment is coming to them. And there's nowhere to hide. The second question and that I want to expand on, or the second point I want to expand on when it comes to judgment, is the prophet um, indicates throughout the book why the judgment is coming. He is not vague. He's very specific of why this great judgment is coming to, to Israel. Zephaniah 1.5 says this, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of the heaven, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swell, swear by Milcom. These are people who say they worship God, but they also worship something else. Um, that, this being a literal other God. And that, we can make a straight connection to our lives today as well. How many people do we know that worship Say they worship God, but put their faith in other things. Put their faith in their money, in their stability, in, in, in anything else. It's spiritual adultery to God. And then we see in verse 12, chapter 1, At this time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will He do ill. The prophet makes a very uh, strategic and, and, and very uh, um, uh, specific reason why he uh, why God is judging Israel. These people are people who say they say there's a God, but don't think He does anything. They say, yeah, there's a God, and they live their life like there is no God. And then finally in verse 17, chapter 1, it says this, 
I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because, now listen to this, because they have sinned against the Lord. It can be summed up in that. The reason why judgment is coming to Judah, to Israel, is because they have sinned against God. That's a sobering thought. And it's something that we all can um, connect with. How many times in my life, reading this, have I thought to myself, well, telling a small lie, not a big deal. Gossiping, um, skipping church, anything like that, it's not a big deal. But in verse, in chapter 1, verse 17, we see it's a sin against God. It's a sin against this holy, awesome, just, powerful God. Every sin that we commit. How serious do we take our sin? How much would we change how we view our sin and how we act daily if we knew and we thought to ourselves that I'm sinning not only against my neighbor, not only against someone that I know, but because I'm sinning against a holy and awesome God, a just and powerful God, the God who created the universe. That's who I'm sinning against. And finally, I want to point out that judgment is not only coming to Israel. It's not only coming to Judah here. It's very clear throughout this scripture, throughout Zephaniah, that it's coming for all people. Chapter 2. Just listen. Throughout, throughout it, it states all these other nations. Oh, shameless nations. It talks about Gaza. It talks about Canaan. It talks about Judah. It talks about um, Sodom, Moab. Every nation is encompassed within this judgment. Not only is it Israel, but it's all nations because all have sinned. I don't want us to forget this point that all have sinned and fallen short. So judgment is coming for all people. If you can imagine, if we, if we put a map up and in chapter 2, one day, uh, I pray that you would read it, we would see that it talks about all the geographical regions around Israel. So we have this map right here, and it's talking about this, north of it, east of it, west of it, and it's encompassing all things, all of it. And this, and this tells us two things. One, that all the nations will be judged. And two, there will be nowhere you can flee to escape the coming judgment. And like I said, this judgment is not only about the incoming judgment upon Israel. Soon after this book was written, Babylon came. They destroyed Israel. They tore down the temple and all was scattered. But this judgment is for everyone. It's for them, it's for the nations at this time, and it's for us. Judgment is coming. It encompasses everything. Chapter 2, verse 18 says this. Nope. It's not a verse. <laughs> Chapter 3, verse 8 says this. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. On that day, I will rise up to seize the prey, to gather nations, symbol kingdoms, to pour out upon my indignation, indignation, all my burning anger. 
So this is for all the nations. This is for all people. In short, this judgment is great. It's absolute. It is coming because we have sinned against God. And it is coming for all people. Not just Israel. In verse 14, this is why a great rejoicing is happening. Verse 14, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, all, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken, taken away your judgment. This rejoicing is happening and is demanded of us because we know what we've been saved from. We read through chapter 1 and chapter 2 very quickly just to show you the judgment that was coming. The judgment which was great and powerful. But we've been saved from that. All Christians have been saved from that. The rich and the poor, the skilled and the unskilled, those who by the world standards are good or bad. Any Christian who puts their faith in Jesus and God and the one true God is saved from that judgment. Which is why it's such a big deal in verse 14 to sing aloud, to shout. That's why we sing songs like we sung today. How great the Father's love for us. How great is that, that He would save us. We praise Him for that. When was the last time that we stopped and we thought of our salvation? Not only, yes, God has saved me, but what has He saved me from? What is this judgment that He saved me from? What is this great and powerful um, destruction that I was headed to and now I'm not? The second point that I want to point out here is Christians should rejoice about how we have been saved and who has saved us. The holy and righteous judgment that is coming from God is the only one who can remove it. God is the only one who can remove the judgment that is coming from God. We see this in verse 15. The Lord has taken away, has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. And we see this theme throughout the Bible. Throughout the Bible, it's, uh, it's told that it's God who saves. It's not us. It's not, we don't do anything. Verse 9 in chapter 3 says that. For at that time I would change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve them with one accord. It's God who's changing the speech of the people so that they can praise God. We see these in other passages of Scripture. Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put in a, a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone and the, your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Ephesians 2, 8. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 9 says that. It says this. For by the grace of God you have been saved through faith. And it is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man can boast. This is why we cannot boast of our salvation. Because it is God who saves. It is a God who does the saving. 
So Christians should rejoice about that because we cannot save ourselves. It is only God who saves because the judgment is coming from Him. We should also rejoice because who has saved us? We see this in verse 15, the second part, verse through 17. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Again and again through this book and these two verses, we see that God is in our midst. And He is a mighty one who will save. This is a promise. God will save His people. There are some other versions that I wanted to read um, about God being a mighty one who will save. NASB says this, He is a victorious warrior. The RSV says, a warrior who gives victory. And the NLT says, a mighty Savior. All different translations conveying the same principle. That God is a mighty Savior. He will fight for us and He will win. He will save us and that is an absolute statement. God does not fail in saving His people. We also see that the Lord saves. After He saves, He doesn't disappear from us. It says this, that the Lord is in your midst. And it says it again in verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst. The Lord doesn't save us from judgment and then stop. He doesn't come in and gives us salvation and leave. Saves us from that judgment and then goes away. He builds that personal relationship. He is in our midst. He's with us. If you're a Christian here today, God is with you. If you're a Christian within a church, God is with us together. God saves and He is with us. He promised to be with us. He promised to be with us until the end. So because of all this, because He is with us, He has saved us and He promises to remain us, to remain with us. I want to make a quick point that Christians can now face judgment and evil without fear. That's what the text says in verse 15 through 17. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let your, let your hands not grow, grow weak. The Lord your God is, a, is in your midst. So because of that, as Christians, we don't fear that's why we hear stories of these saints marching down to their death, singing hymns. Because what can man do to us today? And that's nothing. Because God is in our midst. He has taken away our judgment. Ultimately, we will all pass from this. And we'll be on the other side of eternity with God. So we can have no fear in what evil or man can do, for us, do to us. Because of that. And my final point is as Christians, we should recognize and marvel at the joy displayed in, in God's saving. The last verse is three parallel statements. Three parallel statements about God's love.
towards His people. And God's love in saving His people. Verse 17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. And He will exult you with loud singing. I think this is a point I know that I miss a lot of the times. I get that judgment was coming. Judgment was coming because I sinned. And judgment was coming because I sinned. And then God saved me from that. I usually end it there. I usually say, thank you God for saving that. Saving me. But the Bible goes a lot deeper into that. Verse 17. He will rejoice over you with gladness. God is not saving us because He has to. Or He feels obligated to. It's not something that he always thought of it when I was younger as something he reluctantly did. As God is up there saying, well, you messed up. I guess I'm going to have to come save you now. Um, yeah. I'm going to have to come bail you out or something. God rejoices over our, our salvation. He's ecstatic about his accomplishment through the cross to save us. To save us from this judgment. And like I said, God is under no obligation to save sinners. Yet He chooses to, because of His great love, to save us. He rejoices when He saves us. God's joy in seeing His people being saved is much greater than anything that we can comprehend. Isaiah 62.5 tries to put it in a way that we can understand. It states this, As a bridegroom rejoices over the bride so shall your God rejoice over you. I can remember the day I got married. Um, and I was ecstatic, and I was rejoicing, and it was a great day. Um, it's one of the best days of someone's life to get married. However, that day is fleeting. That day has passed. One day I will pass. One day we will all pass. And that joy, I can no longer be in joy of that. But God is not fleeting. God's joy in saving His people is everlasting. It brings people into His presence. It's much greater than anything that we can imagine. So we should rejoice in that. And I'll end on this, on this last part of the text. He will quiet you by His love and He will exult over you with loud singing. God being joyful of our salvation when we are brought to Him on the other side of eternity and He will sing over us. I have to read that verse over and over again because it, it just blows my mind. The God of the universe. We will stand in awe of His great love without speech, without anything to say because we have no idea what to say because we're in front of the Creator of everything. And the, that God who spoke and creation happened in Genesis 1, the God who spoke everything into being will sing in eternity because He saved us. And He's rejoicing in that. He's singing over us. That's something that we, don't, that we should not miss. And it's something I miss all the time. God's joy in saving His people is very real. 
So knowing that, that He has saved us from this great judgment, He has saved every Christian from this great judgment. We should rejoice in that. And to end right now, I just pray that throughout the week we would marvel at the rejoicing salvation of God. That He has saved us. And we recognize His great love for His people. So if you would, just pray with me. Lord, we thank You for today. We thank You for text and Zephaniah that showcase Your great love and Your salvation towards Your people. Things that we can't begin to comprehend. Lord, we just we thank you for everything that you do. We thank you for um, we thank you for saving us, God. Be with us through the week, Lord. Strengthen us, grow us through your word. In your Son's name, we pray. Amen.